0: Thank you very much. Um, you've given an excellent summary of my uh, recent life's history and um, an ex- excellent prediction of what I hope uh, to be saying to you this evening. I define uh, logic, to begin with, as the study of the rules of valid reasoning—valid reasoning about facts and events and phenomena in the real world. Like all branches of science, um, logic uh, seeks generality so that it can be widely applied and successfully applied to a wide range of application areas. In the present day, computer hardware and computer software have emerged as an economically dominant area of the application of logic. And yet many of the essential concepts of logic were discovered by philosophers of previous millennia, originally inspired by quite different applications. Is the hearing working all right? Yes, good, thank you. Applications of logic include biology. Long ago, Aristotle's logic was evidently applicable to classificatory biology, whereas computational biology is now beginning to exploit modern programming logic. My own connection with biology is rather tenuous. In 1958-59, I studied for a year at Oxford University's Unit of Biometry in Keeble Road. So I'm particularly pleased to be lecturing here in the Wilson series of lectures, named after the great biologist, JBS Haldane and his father. Um, JBS was professor of biometry at University College London. And um, so um, it's appropriate that I should be talking here. And an even greater delight to me is to come back to to a college at which I was a fellow for 22 years and an emeritus fellow for 11 years in exile. Cambridge my talk will summarize uh, some of the discoveries of the great philosophers of the past. I've selected some discoveries um, which I have which have more recently been rediscovered in ignorance by computer scientists, especially including myself. I will suggest that each discovery, was inspired by an application that was relevant to society at the time that it was made. And that was long before computers of the power of the present day uh, were even imaginable. I hope that my summary will support my conclusion that in its application of deductive logic to the needs of the present day, computer science belongs to one of the great intellectual and academic traditions of human history that have applied logic. Perhaps the same insight has inspired Oxford University in its recent introduction and announcement of a new joint honours school in philosophy and computer science. With my background, of course, I heartily welcome this development and wish it the best success. Now this table gives a summary of the topics I have chosen for you this evening. Uh, the left column names a branch of logic which I consider to be highly relevant to computer science. Second column gives a contemporary application, a contemporary with the logician named in the third column, uh, Aristotle, Euclid, Occam, and Leibniz. Now, um, the case that I want to make is to describe a speculation of my own, again, of an almost unimaginable future. I should speculate that the four branches of logic that I have mentioned and many more branches listed on this slide will be combined in a carefully judged proportions provide a coherent logic for reasoning about computer programs. A programming language will provide its notations and the logic of programming will enable one to deduce from the text of the program itself all the possible consequences of running that program on a computer. In particular we will be able to prove that a program is free from certain kinds of serious error. Furthermore, the computer itself will be able to check this fact even before running the program. The eventual payoff, as they say these days, the bottom line is that this will contribute to a reduction in the billions of dollars per year which are lost to the world's economy as a direct or indirect consequence of programming error. And my final flight of imagination, I will suggest that programs also provide a good notation for describing the real world phenomena of time and space, change and motion, history and geography. These aspects of logic have rather fallen out of Uh, fashion, um, uh, perhaps because of the enormous success of modern symbolic logic in dealing with the foundations of mathematics. But I claim that there are many forms of common sense temporal and spatial reasoning used by programmers that do not require the numerical calculation of the mathematician. They have in the past been considered as belonging to the domain of logic itself. And by reintroducing these concepts, concepts taken from programming, into mainstream logic, we will greatly extend the range of that subject to cover common sense reasoning about the real world. When this happens, computer science will begin to repay the vast debt which it owes to the philosophers and logicians of the past. The early principles of deductive logic were codified as syllogisms by the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle. Um, Aristotle, um, his study of logic, was inspired by the need to detect errors in philosophical, political, and legal disput- disputations. But its clearest scientific application was to reasoning in classificatory biology of which he was the founding father. In Aristotle's day, of course, philosophy took the sum of human knowledge as its subject matter and he taught in his academy many subjects which are still taught in our universities today but each of them only in a separate department. Philosophy started its development before the separate disciplines split off from each other and it is still one of the most interdisciplinary of subjects. Like all branches of uh, logic um, and mathematics, the study of logic starts by listing the range of concepts that are its subject matter. It then lists the range of sentences that can be used to describe the properties of each concept. These properties may be properties enjoyed by each concept in isolation or in relationship to each other. Logic introduces precise notations to denote each concept and defines the range of sentences that it's dealing with by formalizing the grammar or syntax of a grossly simplified language. Much simpler than the natural language which we use for describing the same phenomena in the real world. The rules of logical deduction are then defined, again, by their general syntactic form. Of course, they apply only to the sentences of the previously defined form and content. In Aristotle's logic, there are four permitted forms of sentence listed on this slide. The letters S and P are intended to be replaced by the names of individuals like Socrates, or the names of sets of individuals like sharks, or fishes, or animals. The vowels A, E, I, and O are just used to name the form of four different kinds of sentences, as again showed at the bottom of this slide. Um, When one uses logic, um, or even describes it informally, one often uses natural language um, which don't conform exactly to this pattern, but with some sacrifice of natural idiom, all the sentences which we could reason about as syllogisms uh, can be made to conform to one of these four, four patterns. Uh, Aristotle also defined 24 patterns or syllogisms for valid deduction. Um, like the rules of grammar, these are introduced by rules which relate solely to the form of the sentences and the proofs, and not to their content or meaning. Here are two examples of syllogisms. Um, they were later given the names Barbara and Celarent. Each syllogism Um, consists of three sentences on three successive lines. The first two sentences are called premises, major and minor, and they're written above the um, drawn line, and the third is a conclusion which is um, written below the line. Um, I've used, uh, at the side of of the three lines, I've indicated by one of the four vowels what the form of that um, deduction what that form of that syllogism is, and the um, name Barbara is, was chosen or made up to signify that all, all the sentences in the syllogism are of form A. Uh, the, uh, the next syllogism was called Celarent because um, the pattern of its premises and conclusion. Are of the form E, A, and E. Um, going the wrong way. Here's an example of um, taken from biology, um, which um, as I said, is is a concession to human weakness because the pure logic it doesn't matter what um, uh, what the subject matter of the sentences is. Um, I've uh, chosen an example uh, from his uh, biological um, work um, which actually dates from an early visit he paid to the island of Lesbos. Um, He got the fisherman on return from a fishing trip to show him and name for him all the, uh, all the catch in their nets and he realized that sharks and rays were similar to each other but different from the majority of the inhabitants of the sea and the contents of the nets, so he classified these two species under a distinct genus of Salachians, a term that is uh, no longer in use. Such classifications of biological species and subspecies and phyla and families and kingdoms have been the essence of mainstream biology until the current millennium. Because of their tree structure, the classifications provide a vast body of observational evidence and observational material for use as premises in the deductions of Aristotelian logic. Even larger bodies of experimental data gathered by scientists are now stored on the computer networks throughout the world. Techniques for reasoning about the data stored on computers has been um, are being automated by specialized forms of deductive logic called ontology, which are uh, more powerful um, than the syllogism of Aristotle. The... Um ontology is used to formulate a question in which the answer is looked up in the computerized data and the information the answer is presented in a form which is meaningful to the scientist and which he can use to test and formulate his theories and predict their consequences. Uh, Aristotle's approach to logic has been pervasive in in computer science. Um, uh, for example, every programming language is defined first by its syntax, using letters like S and P to stand for the component parts of the program. In place of Aristotle's simple sentence structure, there are usually hundreds of grammatical rules that determine whether a program is syntactically correct and therefore subject to the reasoning power of logic. Fortunately, the computer itself can be got to check the observance of these rules and reject as nonsensical any programs which violate them. Now even the execution of a a syntactically valid program is very like a proof. The individual steps taken by the computer are defined not by twenty-four but by hundreds of deductive patterns very similar to those of the syllogism. Aristotle could hardly have imagined that his deductions would one day be carried out automatically by a machine at a speed of billions of deductions per second he could not have predicted that there would be billions of computers in the world each of them capable of performing logical operations at this same enormous speed i'm not keeping up very well. aristotle's deductive principles are also applied when a computer itself engages in logical reasoning. The rules of deduction make it very easy to check whether a supposed proof of any length is in fact correct. All you have to do is to look at the previous lines in the proof and match them against the rules of of deduction. And a computer is very good at doing that. But computers can help very much more effectively than just this. Computers can look for proofs of conjectures by selectively searching all the axioms and all the conclusions that are deduced from them and from all the other lines of the the proof that have been produced so far. They can examine far more cases than any human being would have the patience or accuracy to achieve computers have recently helped in generating and checking long proofs of interesting theorems of mathematics and they have established conjectures that have eluded human proof for many centuries. Could I have some water please? Thank you. The first of these big theorems was the um, uh, four-color theorem uh, which states that Every country on a flat map can be painted with just four different colors. Thank you very much. And no neighboring countries need to share the same color. A recent uh, computer proof using the Koch programming language and proof validating system required examination of 633 separate cases each of them requiring, on average, over a million proof steps. A billion steps in all. A more recent triumph was the Kepler conjecture, which uh, states that the natural greengrocer's way of stacking oranges, or in the mathematician's case, perfect spheres, will pack the most fruit into the least space. And a fully automatic proof of this is still being constructed My next hero is the ancient Greek geometer Euclid He lived and worked in Alexandria around the turn of the 4th century BC He systematically applied deduction um, uh, to the logical proof of theorems about physical space with applications to the measurement of land which was of course the original meaning of the word geometry Ever since his day geometry has been used for drawing of boundaries, um, building of fences, design of buildings, surveying and making of maps and geometry now has a widespread application in computer graphics and the programs which control the displays on this computer screen and all the computer screens in the world, uh, a great many film screens and television screens are, con- are controlled by programs using Euclidean geometry. Now, the logic of Euclid was very different from that of Aristotle. It was not just about things and classes and their properties, it was about how to achieve a desired effect. The major part of a typical Euclidean proof is a construction which shows how to draw a line or a triangle or some other figure which possesses some desired property. The proof is therefore essentially a program of instructions which when executed by a human being, or by a computer, will draw a figure which has been proved to possess the desired property. So it's not too fanciful to call Euclid the inventor of the world's first programming language. It contains nearly all the essential features of the languages taught today in an introductory course for computer scientists except perhaps the most important one, which is the loop. Now this ideal of constructions or programs that are accompanied by a proof of their own correctness is one that has inspired my own lifelong research, Directions. It has obvious um, uh, application in uh, reducing the enormous cost of programming error, which I have... Um, estimated earlier at many billions of dollars. And the ideal of designing a programming language in which every program is accompanied by its proof has been embodied in the Koch programming language. The same one that I mentioned as having proved the um, four-color theorem. Koch uh, is a Uh, uh, immense achievement, a software system based on the principles of constructive or intuitionistic logic which regards programs and proofs as inseparable because they are the same thing. Now I would like to just um, describe for you Um, an outline of Euclid's programming language. Um, I'll concentrate on book one of the uh, elements of Euclid, in which he defines uh, five basic postulates, of which I have shown uh, two of them here. Um, They're not statements of facts, they are in fact, the description of the basic actions which his programs are allowed to perform. So his, his postulate is, is drawn, is stated in the infinitive that there is a way to draw a, tra- state li- a straight line between any two points. Third postulate, it's possible to draw a circle with any given center and any given radius. Um, The fifth one is the parallel postulate, but those two will be enough for my purposes for the time being. Then he has 23 definitions. Definitions um, have two functions. One of them is to describe the relationship between his technical terms and the phenomena in the real world uh, which they stand for. So the first definition, a point, is that which has no part, um, is clearly, identifies for anybody who knows how to draw a point, the essential characteristic of a point, a line, a figure. Number 15 defines a circle, 16 uh, defines the center of the circle, number 20 uh, defines an equilateral triangle as a triangle with just three sides. Um, Then the main content of of book one is 48 propositions of which I've shown the first um, here and the last two are two statements of Pythagoras' Theorem. Uh, Propositions uh, play the role of subroutines because they contain constructions which can be reused again and again just like calling a subroutine in a computer program. And when called, they deliver a construction, a result, a diagram, which is known to have the the property that is desired because it has been proved. So here is his proof of um, Proposition 1, that um, uh, that you can construct an equilateral triangle with a given side. So here I've drawn a line which represents the given side that the construction starts with. So the first um, uh, action is to draw a circle with the line as radius and center at one end. Postulate 3 tells tells us that you can do that and um, Arbitrarily, I've chosen the left-hand end of the um, line as of to draw the circle. In fact, um, a lot of Euclid's constructions do offer a choice to the person drawing the diagram, or the person designing a building, or drawing a boundary as to exactly how to interpret the instructions. Um, the non-deterministic choice um, Is characteristic of Euclid's logic. Um, In fact it doesn't matter which one I chose to do first because the next step in the construction is to draw a circle with its center at the other end of the line and with its radius um, at the first end of the line. So can anybody remember this construction? Oh, well done. (laughs) I thought it was beautiful. Well, here's another example of choice. Um, We want to choose a point which is on both the circles. A point where the two circles intersect. So, um, I've just chosen the point which is on this diagram drawn above the line. And I've called it C. So this is an example of what in a modern programming language we call an assignment giving a value to a name. And the last step in the construction is to join the selected points to both ends of the um, original line. Now here again there was a choice of uh, which line to draw first or indeed, because they're occupying different points in space, um, you could draw them at the same time. If you had two, two surveyors out in the field, um, or two fences to build, those two fences could be drawn at the same time. Modern languages deal with concurrent execution, um, but Euclid's language didn't, didn't mention it explicitly again here this uh, slide illustrates the fact that the construction offers a non-deterministic choice it doesn't say exactly whether the new uh, triangle is to be built below the line or above it. Ah, but I haven't yet proved that the triangle is equilateral and this can be done in uh, two or three steps first of all look at the left-hand circle The two lines from the center of that circle all go to the circumference of the same circle. And the definition of a circle told us that all the radii of a circle have the same length. So the two lines marked with blue equal signs are in fact equal. The lines marked in red are equal by a very similar argument. And now uh, I conclude that all three sides of the triangle are equal, and which satisfies the definition of the um, equilateral triangle uh, given in definition 20. I've actually left out a step here. i proved that two pairs of lines are equal. I haven't proved that the third line is equal um, because it uses a principle of reasoning that uh, Euclid calls a common notion, which is common to all forms of reasoning. Uh, namely, the two things, um, if um, what do we say? Uh, if two pairs of equal th- uh, things share um, an element, then uh, the Um, Other two things are also equal, so there is one line in common between those two equations and it proves that all three of them are equal. So here's a summary of the programming language we've been using. Uh, The primitive actions are postulates, new names can be defined and given values, Commands can be sequenced. We can do one thing after another. It's a very important principle, both in proofs and in constructions. Subroutines, like propositions, uh, in the rest of book one, uh, Euclid can um, assume the ability to draw an equilateral triangle. Preconditions are the given data, the parameters, the construction that we start with a straight line in this case and post conditions which are the conclusion or the qed of the proof as a whole would you be willing to take over for me thank you very much i've called on bernard suffering to give my voice a little rest good luck But I'll be still sitting here, so if you want to throw anything, throw them at me and not at him.
1: It's take to correct the president. He's the ventriloquist and I'm the (laughs) dummy. I'll translate the paradox into the modern world of computers, programs, and programmers and implementers. It is the programmer who creates and initializes a new world inside the computer on which his program starts to run. In this respect, the programmer plays the role of Occam's God. From a definition of the language in which the program is written, everything that happens during program execution is logically predictable from examination of the program itself, even before the start of its execution. In principle, if you were clever and patient enough, the programmer could predict everything that was going to happen. A computer that executes the programmer's program plays the role of man in Occam's paradox. So we conclude that a computer, one that correctly implements the programming language, has no free will. This conclusion certainly follows validly from the premise, and the premise is certainly true, provided that the programming language is deterministic. However, most programs and programming languages of the present day, as well as Euclid's historic language, are not deterministic. Programmers using a non-deterministic programming language, however patient and clever, cannot predict precisely how their program will behave. A non-deterministic programming language, for good reasons of improved performance, allows its implementer a carefully circumscribed scope for exercise of free will, to make choices between the alternatives presented by the programmer. I've illustrated this form of non-determinism in Euclid's Proof of Proposition 1. Translating this revised premise back into the theological paradox, it is the implementer that plays the role of man, who exercises the gift of free will to make the choices which the program has left open. This is entirely consistent with the foreknowledge by the programmer of the whole range of all the different ways in which the implementer's free will can be exercised and of all the consequences of each choice. William of Ockham considered that the knowledge of God was of this conditional form, conditional on choices to be made by man, exercising his free will to control certain aspects of what will happen in the future. The knowledge of God and by analogy, the knowledge of the programmer, can be drawn as a tree, with a choice at every branch point. Because of the human choices, the prophecies of God have to be understood as conditional. When God told the prophet Jonah to predict that Nineveh would be destroyed, as shown by the red lightning strike, the prediction was based on the obvious premise that the citizens of Nineveh Would continue their sinful ways as shown by the downward path in the diagram but the Bible Jonah 3 tells us that the citizens repented their ways with fasts and sackcloth and ashes and as a result their city was saved but this did not prove the falsity of God's prophecy just that it's obviously intended premise had been made false by the exercise of the free will of man Such a picture of branching time is the basis of a popular version of modern temporal logic, CTL. Tony, CTL, can you gloss the initials for us? (laughs) Something, sorry? Computational tree logic, which has been implemented on a computer to assist in the verification of computer hardware and computer programs, even non-deterministic ones. It is used on a daily basis to reduce the cost of design errors even before the computer or the program has been fully designed. Temporal logic was only one small part of Occam's general logic. In fact, it dealt with just the last member of the list shown on this slide. The expressive power of Occam's logic was much greater than that of Aristotelian logic because it allowed complete sentences for example, P or Q on this slide, to be included as subordinate or coordinate clauses in other larger sentences. Even these clauses are allowed to contain further subordinate or coordinate clauses. In fact, these five connectives can be used to make explicit the logical and temporal structure not only of sentences, but also of paragraphs, sections, chapters, volumes right up to the sum total of human knowledge held in the libraries of the world and increasingly in our computers. But I hope to convince you of an even bolder claim that these and similar connectives are used in all modern day programming languages to write our largest programs out of smaller component programs, right down to the basic commands obeyed directly in a single step by the computer. To explain the meaning of Occam's sentences, I will draw pictures. Here is an abstract picture of ovals standing for the objects described by the sentences of logic. The objects could be things and people and classes, as in Aristotelian logic, or points and lines and figures in Euclidean geometry, or numbers and functions in mathematical logic. Each of our clauses or sentences, for example, P, Q will describe some more or less general properties of a set of the objects of our logic. On this slide, I've drawn a circle labeled P to enclose all those objects which have the property P, and similarly for Q. Elkhem's copulativa, now called conjunction, is written here as ampersand. The sentence P ampersand Q describes just those objects shown in red on this slide, they are enclosed both by the circle for P and the circle for Q, and this shows that they satisfy both of these properties as suggested by the name of the connective, and. The disjunction can be defined just as easily as all, as just as easily as all those objects that are covered either by P or by Q. Logical disjunction is exactly what explains the phenomenon of non-determinism in programs and programming languages or in the biblical story of the non-destruction of Nineveh. As a program, P or Q behaves non-deterministically by executing either the program P or the program Q. But the programmer doesn't know which. It is the implementer of the program who has the free choice of which of them will actually be chosen in each execution of the disjunction. So the disjunction of logic describes a branch point in the diagram that I drew to illustrate Occam's doctrine of branching time. One of the alternative branches possible for P or Q leads to execution of P and the other leads to the execution of Q. In order to deal with Occam's temporal connectives, we need to analyze in greater detail the kinds of objects which are described by our sentences. They will denote not just static things or objects, but rather events that occur in time and space and which involve change and motion of objects. So our ovals will be interpreted as stories, each of which describes many somewhat related events that may occur sequentially in time or concurrently in space. The stories may aim to be true in the real world, either in the past, when they're called histories, or in the future, when they're called prophecies, or partly in both. Or they may occur in an imaginary world, in which case we call them myths, if they're old enough, or fiction, if written in the present day. But as a computer scientist, I'll be particularly interested in stories of what occurs inside a computer that is executing a program. In this case, it is the program itself that determines what stories can be told about it. But everything I say applies equally well to all the other kinds of story that can be told. And this will lead me towards my final conclusion, that the same logic that applies to programs can apply to all other kinds of story as well. So let us first deal with a single story at a time, shown as a single oval on this slide. In general, a story consists of one or more events, and they're shown here as small circles because I will not wish to divide them further. Each distinct event occurs at a distinct point in time or space or both. If two events occur at the same time, they must occur in different places, so they will be drawn one above the other. If two events occur in the same place, they'll be drawn at the same height in the diagram. Since there are many events within a single story, I can classify them into two or more parts or sub-stories. This enables each sub-story to be described by a separate clause or sentence. On this slide, the events have been classified as either red or green. Here, I've used a black line to split the story into the red substory and the green substory. The line is horizontal, indicating that the red events occur in different places from the green events. Because it occurs at a different place, a red event may occur at the same time as a green event, or it may occur in between two successive green events. This picture explains the phenomenon of concurrent execution of parts of a computer program. The effect is that the red subprogram is executed at the same time and together with the green subprogram. The intention is that the two sub programs are executed concurrently in two different computers, or at least in different parts of the same computer. There is much more to be said about concurrent execution of programs, but you should not lose sight of the simplicity of the basic idea. I now move back to my original picture of stories as objects of the logic. As before, the letters P and Q stand for properties of stories. Again, the properties are drawn as circles, enclosing just those stories which possess the named property. Occam's temporal operator, with, may be written between two clauses which describe these two properties. P with Q is a property of all stories pictured in the overlap of the two circles. Each of the stories individually can be split horizontally into two substories, indicating that each substory occurs in a different place. Furthermore, one of the substories has property P, shown in green, and the other has property Q, shown in red. In my illustration, you'll see two complete stories in the intersection of the two circles for P and Q. Each of them consists of a green part which satisfies property P and a red part which has property Q. The other stories of P and Q drawn outside the area of overlap are the wrong shape and cannot fit together, so they don't have the property described by the phrase P with Q. I'll now give a similar explanation to another temporal operator, which I identify with sequential composition in programming. I start again with my story consisting of just five events. Here I've again subdivided the story into green and red events, but in this case, the dividing line between them is vertical rather than horizontal. This means that all the green events occur in time before all the red events. This allows the possibility that a red event and a green event can occur at the same place, but of course never at the same time. Returning to the complete sentences P and Q, which describe properties of our stories, here is a second way of combining the sentences using a temporal operator then, or a semicolon. The operator is commonly written as semicolon in a programming language. Its purpose is to ensure that execution of the program component Q does not begin until after the execution of the component P has terminated. The idea is so common that in other programming languages like Euclid's, it is simply taken for granted and so often omitted. It's also usually omitted in stories expressed in natural language. But for purposes of logic, it is clearer to make implied concepts such as these explicit.
0: Am I on the air again? Uh, I should be. Yes, here I am. Great. Thank you very much. That was splendid. Um, the, um, this is rather like the fates sharing a single eye, isn't it? We've only got one voice between us. (laughs) Well, I think we're uh, uh, coming to the end, so I'd like to just um, sum up um, by mentioning another great logician of the past, um, this time a logician of the twentieth um, century, um, who is well known as the um, father of computer science, I refer to Alan Turing. Um, Alan Turing um, also uh, made had a flight of the, of imagination which is very similar to my own Um, and therefore uh, I have only, as it were, replayed his imagination um, in ignorance of his expression of it. Um, In 1948 he gave a paper to the London Mathematical Society with the title, On Checking a Large Routine. This was the same talk in which he introduced the idea of proving programs by means of assertions. An idea which has been rediscovered many times by, uh, for example, von Neumann independently, uh, Floyd uh, and Nauer, and um, I got it from Peter Nauer. Sorry, not Peter Nauer, um, Bob Floyd also rediscovered it. Um, So we were all, all these rediscoveries were rediscoveries in ignorance of uh, Turing's basic idea. He, th- he said that he, pre- he predicted that the language in which one communicates with these machines, by which he meant a programming language, forms a sort of symbolic logic. I've perhaps gone a little bit further, perhaps further than I should have done, in uh, suggesting that one day a programming language will not just be a sort of logic, but an integral part of the mainstream of applied logic itself. Because when that happens, computer science will take its proper place in the history of thought as the latest development of one of the ancient and great intellectual traditions of the human race. Thank you very much. Thank you.